Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, and I invite you to pause this now and read that before continuing. So we're in a new series in Mark, and we're calling this The Way of Jesus. In Mark, remember, we learn more about Jesus from what he does than from what he says. In, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a man of action. He's a man on the move. And so we're looking at his way. What does Jesus do? How does he make his way among us? But remember, what, and what we see actually really overtly in, in this passage is that the way of Jesus becomes an invitation, a call for us to join him on his way. We aren't meant to read Mark and sit back and observe and think, oh, interesting, that's what Jesus does. No, his way is meant to become our way. In our passage, we see that one of the first things Jesus does when he begins his public ministry is that he calls others to follow him. Immediately, he begins to form a community around himself. One way to talk about this is with the language of discipleship. It's a churchy word, isn't it? Discipleship. But it wasn't a churchy word back then. A disciple is simply a student. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be his student, to learn from him. But in Mark, to be a disciple is more than that. It's to follow Jesus. It's to join him on the road that he's taking. I want to look at what this passage shows us about the foundation of discipleship, and then the pattern of discipleship, and then finally the cost of discipleship. Okay, so first let's look at the foundation of discipleship. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That's what Mark says. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, this is the first thing we need to see about the foundation of discipleship. The foundation of discipleship is the gospel. Good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. See, Jesus is announcing that something has changed. Something is different. Something new and wonderful has happened that completely changes our reality. He doesn't come advising us to adopt a certain set of New Year's resolutions. He doesn't come and tell us about how we can transform ourselves in the world if we, follow, if we um, follow specific guidelines and principles or if we, if we adopt new habits. He comes and he announces a fact, something that is true, whether or not we believe it, whether or not we care about it. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Now, because it's a fact, because it doesn't depend on us really at all, do you see this is grace? It's a gift. God has acted in history. He has finally come near to rule his world and to begin making things right. The gospel is good news because it doesn't depend on what we might be able to do if we try really hard, but on what God has done for us. Now, why, why make such a big deal about this? You know, there's a tendency for us to turn our discipleship and our Christian growth into something that ultimately depends on us. I'm a good disciple if I do certain things and, and work at, at certain activities like Bible study and prayer and spiritual disciplines. Now, discipleship does involve all of those things, but you'll end up feeling pretty hopeless and discouraged if you make any of those things the foundation of your discipleship. Our growth as Christians ultimately depends on what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do in the future. Family discipleship depends on the gospel. 
So that's the first thing we see about the foundation of discipleship. The second thing to notice about the foundation is this call that Jesus gives. Christian discipleship completely depends on receiving a call from Jesus Christ. When we read the Gospels, we see there are all kinds of people who are interested in Jesus. Um, Some people probably followed him around out of sheer curiosity, but not everyone responded to his call. See, what about you? Are you only interested or are you hearing his call and responding to it? See, in the Gospel of Mark, that's what makes the disciple someone who hears the call of Jesus and responds to it by following Jesus on his way. So Jesus comes to us with this call. There are a couple of ways in which the call of Jesus is really unique. I want to highlight them for you. First, in Jesus' day, it was common for respected rabbis to have disciples. It would go something like this. You'd go up to the rabbi and you'd say, hey, I'd really like to devote myself to your teachings. And then the rabbi, if he was willing and interested, he would kind of test you out and see if he wanted to take you on as a disciple. And if so, then this process of discipleship would begin. You would become the rabbi's student. The entire relationship depended completely on the initiative of the would-be disciple. The student always sought out the teacher. But look at what Jesus does. Simon and Andrew and James and John, they're just going about their business as usual. They're fishing. They're doing what they do every day, day after day. They weren't looking for ways to improve their spiritual lives. They they weren't aspiring students of the Torah. They're fishermen. And what they really want is a decent catch at the end of the day. And then Jesus approaches them and says, follow me. You see, Jesus is the one who initiates the relationship. If Jesus hadn't called those four guys, they would have spent the rest of their lives on the sea fishing. Jesus initiates the relationship. That was totally unique. No other rabbi went around calling disciples like Jesus did. Here's another way that Jesus' call was unique. In that day, the goal of a typical discipleship relationship um, was always to learn the Torah and to become more devoted to God's law. The student would go to the rabbi and would, in a sense, use the rabbi as a means to the greater end of knowing the Torah. In other words, you would choose a rabbi not so much because he was great, but because he had a reputation for deeply understanding God's law. But what does Jesus do? He calls people to himself. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll help you to the greater end of knowing God's law. He simply says, follow me. You see, the implication is that there is no greater end. Following Jesus, knowing Jesus, being with Jesus, learning from Jesus is more important than knowing the Torah. Jesus is saying, don't follow me so that you can get something else. Follow me so that you can get me. Have you heard that call from Jesus? And if so, are you receiving it and responding to it? Or are you putting it off? You know, you might think, maybe I'll follow Jesus, but first I want to know more about him. First, I need to make sure it's the best thing to do. Maybe you think, I need to figure out what I believe about God first, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to follow Jesus. You know, I wonder if that's exactly backwards. When you think about it, we don't know God and then decide to obey him. We know God by obeying him. We know God as we respond to him in faith. How would Simon and Peter and James and John ever know Jesus without following him, 
without first obeying his call. Family, if you want to know God, start following Jesus. So that's the foundation. We have this announcement that the gospel of God is, has arrived. God has come near. And then we have the call of Jesus. Now, let's look at the pattern of discipleship. What does following Jesus involve? First, discipleship means turning toward God. This is the first part of the pattern. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. But he doesn't stop there. He then says, repent and believe the good news. It's like, because God's kingdom is near, there's now a way of living that makes sense. And there's a way of living that doesn't make sense. Imagine that you live in a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that hasn't had a king in quite a while. The true king has been away. He's expected to return, but he's taking a long time. And while some people are still holding out hope that one day he'll show up, a lot of other people doubt that the true king even exists. And so they've done something kind of interesting. They've gone down to the corner costume shop and they've bought king outfits, crowns and robes and scepters. And now they're all going around acting like little kings. Well, as you can imagine, this leads to all kinds of problems. The kingdom has become one big chaotic mess. Everyone's acting like their own king. But then one day, a stranger walks into the kingdom and he announces that the real king is coming. In fact, the real king has arrived. Now, if you're one of the people going around in the king costume trying to rule your own little world, what do you do at that point? How do you respond? You see, there's only one response that makes any sense. You repent and you believe. You get rid of your silly outfit and you turn to face the true king. And then you drop to your knees and you put your faith in him. See, that's repentance. When the reformer Martin Luther wrote his famous 95 theses, he began by saying in the first theses, thesis, um, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I wonder how that sounds to you. Maybe, maybe it sounds discouraging that our entire life would be one of repentance. It can only sound discouraging if we have the wrong idea about what repentance really is. Remember, from a biblical perspective, repentance is true life and freedom because it means turning away from all our attempts at ruling ourselves and turning toward Jesus Christ, the one who is himself, in himself all the life and light and love that we need. See, repentance means that our lives become more and more lives lived for God. And that family is life. That family is true freedom. Where in your life is Jesus calling you to repent and believe, to turn away from the path you're on, from the path you're pursuing, and to face Jesus Christ and to join him on the road. Okay, so that's the first part of the pattern. It involves, uh, discipleship involves turning toward God through continual repentance and belief. It also involves turning toward others. We see this in verse 17. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, fishers of people, fishers Fishers who, who go after people, not fish. Well, what does that mean? It means that just as our lives following Jesus becomes, become lives lived for God, they also become lives lived for others. Like we don't exist for ourselves anymore. Jesus brings us into community with him so that through us, others 
would be brought into community with him. There might be more to the image. Remember in that ancient culture, the sea was a symbol of chaos and death and darkness. And so it could be that Jesus is saying that as we follow him, he will make us people who draw others out of the sea, out of the chaos, away from death, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. This doesn't happen instantaneously, but as you follow Jesus over time, I bet you'll find yourself getting involved more and more in the lives of other people who need help and whose lives are coming apart. As we follow Jesus, we'll find ourselves less and less self-obsessed and more and more attentive to the people around us, willing to wade out into the chaos of their lives to bring them back to the shore of God's grace. I wonder where in your life is Jesus calling you to live less for yourself and more for others? I wonder who in particular might the Spirit be highlighting and inviting you to reach out to in love? See, this is what people who follow Jesus do. They live for God and they live for others. They turn toward God and they turn toward other people. Okay, we've looked at the foundation of of discipleship and the pattern of discipleship. Now, let's look at the cost of discipleship. When Jesus calls people to follow him, um, that call becomes the highest priority. It resulted in some significant sacrifices for these first disciples. I mean, they needed to leave behind anything that would keep them from following Jesus. Simon and Andrew, they left their jobs. This was so unusual. A rabbi and his disciples typically kept up a trade together. You'd become a student of a rabbi, but you wouldn't be asked to leave your job. I mean, how else would you support yourself? But Jesus comes and he doesn't say, come to class a few hours each week. He doesn't say, stop by and worship with me once once a week in the synagogue. He doesn't say, listen to a sermon every Sunday morning. He doesn't say, I'll meet with you for 10 minutes every morning over a cup of coffee. He says, follow me. In other words, devote the totality of your life to me without reserve. Go where I go and let my life shape your life. It's a bit extreme. And then look at James and John. They're also fishermen, and so they're also called away from their employment, which would have probably been the equivalent of a pretty decent middle-class job. I mean, uh, these men weren't rolling in the dough, but they weren't poor. And we know this because in verse 20, we see that they could afford to hire help. Fishermen on the Sea of Galilee could make pretty decent money. And Jesus calls them away from this. He says, this isn't, this isn't how um, you're going to have your needs met anymore. But James and John uh, don't just leave this behind. They also leave behind their father, Zebedee. This would have been viewed as very strange, probably irresponsible. In a first century patriarchal Jewish family, James and John, they would have had significant responsibilities to their family and to their father in particular. But when Jesus calls, they follow. They walk away from that. Now, what's the point? That as soon as you respond to Jesus' call and start following him, you have to turn in a letter of resignation to your job and say farewell to your parents and family? No, probably not, but the point is, maybe. You see, maybe following Jesus will mean this. The point is that when Jesus calls us, his call becomes ultimate. 
Nothing can stand in the way. Being with Jesus and knowing Jesus has to become the supreme priority. Now, that might sound threatening because we think, oh my goodness, that means that Jesus could ask anything of me. What if he wants me to give up something that's really important to me? What if he leads me somewhere I really don't want to go? Those are fair questions, legitimate questions. I really like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's perspective. He writes this. He says, the disciple simply burns his or her boats and goes ahead. The old life is left behind and completely surrendered. The disciple is dragged out of his or her relative security into a life of absolute security. That is, in truth, into the absolute security and safety of the fellowship of Jesus. See, what's he saying? His point is that, yeah, we do give up some securities when we commit to following Jesus, but they're only relative securities. You know, the truth is that all those things we so desperately cling to only give us the illusion of being secure, being in control, having our lives in order, jobs, friends, families. The reality is that those things could be taken from us at any moment. You know this. Jesus, as Bonhoeffer says, is the one absolute security. And so following him is exactly where we really need to be, even if it doesn't feel like it. And even if at times he takes us to places where we don't want to go. Do you see the cost? Following Jesus means really relinquishing being in charge of your life. It means really letting him lead, really going with him. Family, how can we be a community that does this? How can we be people who follow him faithfully? People who are really free to repent and quick to trust him and so unconcerned with ourselves that we are eager to reach out in love to the people around us. Well, we've seen the cost of discipleship for us, but now look at the cost of discipleship for him, for Jesus. You know, we'll see this more and more as we go through Mark together. But here, just imagine Jesus, he looks out at our sea of chaos, full of sin and death. We're hopelessly lost in it. And what does he do? I mean, the really sane thing, the smart thing to do, the, th- the thing to do that, that honestly I would have done and that you would have done would be to walk away. Just to turn around and walk away. A risky thing to do would be to get in a boat and go out with some nets and see if he might pull some of us out. What Jesus does, though, is he runs, not away from the sea, but right into it. He charges out into the waves of our chaos, and he lets them pound his body and take him under. The waves of sin and death do their worst, and they exhaust themselves on Jesus, and then they lose their power. That's what happens at the end of Jesus' life. We'll see this at the end of the Gospel of Mark on the cross. That's what happens as Jesus saves us. How can we be people who are willing to follow Jesus even when it seems risky? Well, look at Jesus. Not just risking his life, but losing it for us. Giving his life so that we may live. How will we be people who repent and turn to God over and over again? Family, see that he has turned to you. How will you live your life for him? See that he 
has lived his life for you. How will we ever become fishers of people? By following the one who went out fishing for us. Family, this is his love for you and for me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Hear the call of Jesus. Respond to it by following him on his way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.